It's Monday, November 16th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the overlord of Motley Fool Services and Products, Tim Hansen. <laughs> I just made that. I'm going to put that on my business card. I just made that I one love up. that title. Run with that one. Uh, we're going to dip into the full mailbag, but we're going to start with the deal of the day. Merger Monday, living up to its name once again. Marriott International is buying Starwood Hotels for $12.2 billion in cash and stock, thus creating the largest hotel company in the world. Why are shares of Starwood falling? Why, like, If this is such an awesome deal, why is Starwood, the company being bought out, why are their shares trading about 5% lower? Well, well, Starwood has been up for sale for a couple of, uh, of, of weeks, if not months now. So, I think you know, the market have been speculating that the, that the takeout would have been at a higher price than it is currently, although it is kind of a stock deal. So, if you expect the synergies to play out, then um, you know, how Starwood is performing today isn't, isn't that relevant. Um, but that, that, that's why Starward is falling, it's just because people thought a deal was in the works and they just speculated that it would, it would come at a more expensive price tag. It does seem, putting aside the price drop, it does seem on the surface like this is a deal that could work out pretty well when you think about how Starwood and Starwood properties have much more of an international footprint than Marriott does. Yeah. You know, I, at a glance, it, it it does make some sense. You know, you can't say that about all mega mergers. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I think they're going to have about fifteen percent share of the domestic U.S. hotel market. Um, you know, it's funny. So much of the the recent sort of internet and and technology boom has been driven by uh, entrepreneurs who come up with solutions to better distribute somebody else's products. Right. So all those travel websites, they don't actually own any hotel rooms or so on and so forth. Uber doesn't own any cars. It's they're finding a way for, to help other people more efficiently use their assets. But at some point, it seems to me, like if you actually own assets, um, you should you should be able to come up with a better way to more efficiently use them, right? And so, if 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 Starwood and Marriott combined have all this hotel inventory, um, you could foresee a world where you know they've got their own app or their own um, technology interface whereby you can book these rooms and the, and the properties communicate with each other, and so. Uh, you know where you're staying, where you're going, so on and so forth. So it, it puts together a, a pretty valuable asset base in you know play it forward a few years in potentially interesting ways. Yeah, it it really does seem like we have seen a lot of, if not flat out merging, but certainly a lot of partnerships in the travel space. When you look at what's happened recently in China uh, with Sea Trip and mm-hmm. Shunar. It seems like with every passing month, Priceline and TripAdvisor get closer and closer together. Is I don't know. I'm not sure what to think of this, other than as a consumer, I feel like at some point things get big enough that consumers are going to get squeezed. Oh sure. I mean, you know, it's been a it's been a golden age for consumers in the travel space in terms of being able to comparison shop different flights, different ways you can connect, different hotels, what the offers are, and so on and so forth. But the economics to those businesses weren't that good. Um, you know, as consumers got more information, profit margins tended to go down. You know, in China, all those travel online travel websites were losing money hand over fist. And you know, in a world where there's only one Chinese online travel website, they're going to make a lot of money, and the, the Chinese consumer won't see the um, the prices decline as fast as they did, and you know, take rates even on airlines. You know, they declined from paying 11% to paying 3% at at, at Chunar, or perhaps even less than that. 
Um, but you know, this is how business flows, and, and it, it, it ebbs and flows that way. And I think as you know, as businesses consolidate in this sector, it's, it's one of the more mature online sectors. You know, travel websites were among the first to really be consumer facing. Um, the economics for those businesses will get better, and and I don't think prices will necessarily rise for consumers, but you'll stop seeing so many, you know, such such drastic savings year after year. Um, you know, but in, in the fintech space today, for example, you know, with robo advisors, you're seeing sort of the same dynamic play out, but at an earlier stage level. So, Acorns, Wealthfront, Betterment. I mean, these these companies are losing huge sums of money, <laughs> and um, but you foresee a time when they potentially do. Uh, merge or consolidate or get acquired by a bigger player, and then you know the bigger player takes some of their technology, obviously gets some of their users. But as there's fewer people to engage in a price war, the economics of the businesses will stabilize, and consumers probably will stop seeing prices drop as fast as they have. You were in California, was it last week for a mobile conference? Yes, that sounds about right. <laughs> it's all a blur. <laughs> it's all a blur. Uh, I, I, we were chatting earlier. I mentioned that one of the things that caught my eye was you, you did fire off a couple of tweets from the conference, and I'm sure there were some good things, some good takeaways. Oh, yeah. But uh, one of the more humorous takeaways was when you tweeted, it's mind-blowing how, uh, how much intellectual capital <laughs> is being spent to solve mild inconveniences over real problems. It, uh, I, I this is a real, so this is a real quote. This is somebody who was talking about mobile devices and geofencing, which is like being able to figure out where you are based on having the phone in your pocket. And the guy goes, "I kid you not." He's like, "Imagine what the world will be like when you can walk into a Sephora and they know you're there." And it was like, "What? What? <laughs> what will the world be like? Will you better to be able to better target me, scented soap? What? What is?" I can imagine that world, and it's not that much better. Don't than we the live world. in that world right now? Uh, yeah, it's like if the people working <laughs> in the Sephora are looking up at the door. Imagine and- what the world will be like if you can walk into a Sephora, and they know you're there. <laughs> it's like, ah. yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah I, I can imagine that world. Sound that much better or different like, right? from the world we have? What uh, <laughs> were there? However, some interesting takeaways. Oh yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of you know beyond just sort of the humorous. Well, that's I mean, mobile computing you know has the opportunity to do some some incredible things um, in terms you know and not even and it's not mobile. They're not even phones anymore, right? They're like smart pocket devices. And what can you do with something in your pocket that that knows a lot about you, knows where you are in the world, and can solve lots of problems? But I mean, that raises all kinds of interesting questions. I mean, one, there was one startup, and this is, goes back to the lighter side of things, that said, so I, I started this company after I got three bad haircuts in a row to help people better find stylists who can cut their hair. And I was like, well, and now, you, now you've raised $50 million. That's a, that's a mild inconvenience that I'm glad you saw. Well done. Um, you know, but uh, there are other ways. You know, the, and the, other, the other funny um, insight was that... Um, it was it was either TripAdvisor or someone was talking about their mobile app. I think it was I think it was TripAdvisor, and they had said that um, their improvement, their incremental improvement on the like Google Maps experience was that when you don't want to go to a destination, instead of showing you the map, it just on your phone shows an arrow about which direction to start heading, which they thought corrected for. They called the walk of shame. Obviously, if you're in college, walk of shame is a different connotation. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. But their walk of shame was that you know you look at the map and you start walking in one direction and you realize that the blue dot is moving farther away from your destination. So you you know turn around. You know you have to sort of hang your head in shame and go back in the other direction. But where they're like, yeah, just put a big arrow on your phone and just follow the arrow. But now people like most people have no idea where they are in the city or in the world when at any given moment right. they just sort of rely on their device to get them out of there. Um, but there, I mean, there are all sorts of interesting 
talks about <clears throat> where you know where the world um, what what this could enable and, and you know in what aspects is it helpful and then what aspects does it make us turn us into more of a helpless generation of you know people relying slaves on, to our phones correct yeah marketfoolery at fool.com is our email address from Jake Versluis whose name I'm absolutely mispronouncing I'm is sorry that about Dutch? that Jake uh, he writes, I live in California, but there is a stock on the Swedish exchange that I really want to invest in. How do I go about doing that? Kind of a nuts and bolts question with respect to. So, I did some research on this for Jake. And um, so, both Interactive Brokers and Fidelity allow you to trade on the, the, the Swedish stock exchange directly when it's open. Um, so, I think he could just sign up and, and go about it that way. Um, he might want to check to see if there's an ADR first, which trades in the United States, which would make it a lot more convenient for him. Um, but um, you want to be careful whenever you start trading outside of the United States, whether it's on IB, Fidelity, is that the fee schedule is different. You have to do currency conversions because um, obviously you can't pay dollars for something trading in Swedish kroner, and uh, uh, so and there are fees associated with all of that. So the hurdle rate of buying something in Sweden for United States investors should be a lot higher than what you would do just to to, to buy something domestically. Question from Hoda Mayer, also in California. Your show is without a doubt my favorite podcast on my daily commute between San Francisco and Mountain View. Boom. And I, and I have to say, I do subscribe to some great podcasts, including HBR and Freakonomics, but yours usually wins out over them. First of all, love that Hoda is leading with the, uh, kind the, words. the compliment, yeah. the kind words. That's nice company to be. You know, mm-hmm. Harvard Business Review. Freakonomics, that's a nice company. My question is about the battery industry. Recently, I watched a YouTube video of John Doerr. As you know, he's one of the founders of Kleiner Perkins, the godfather of all VC firms. And he talked about the battery industry as the hot space to invest in. He mentioned that we cannot continue on fossil energy, and good companies producing battery packs are the next big thing. I've dipped my toes into this space through Tesla Motors and Solar City. But I'm wondering if there are any other companies on your radar. Are companies like Aerotech or Enersys on your radar? Do you have any advice and investment strategies in the battery space? And before I kick it to you, the tickers for those two companies Aerotech, A R T X, and Enersys, ticker symbol is E N S. I'm unfamiliar with both of those companies. So I looked them up. Uh, Aerotech is like a $30 million microcap. Sort of penny stock type thing. So and as that, a general rule of thumb, yeah, I would, having not really read about the company or the technology, I, my bias is to say that eh, one's probably not worth worth your time. Or or wait, you know, if you sit if you sit on the sidelines and wait for it to get to a hundred and thirty million dollars, <laughs> well, that's you know you're Even not going to. Yeah, yeah, it depends how it gets there. If it's hyped up by some, that's true. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, Enersys is obviously a much bigger company, um, and they do batteries and and I think distributed. Um, Distributed generation for you know make help make power consumption more efficient. I think the broader point that John Doerr is making, I think, is is spot on. That if you can have batteries, then um, it helps solve some of the alternative energy problems that we have on the grid in terms of you know um, you know wind blows wind doesn't blow on a hot day, and so you can't use wind farms to power air conditioners when it's really hot. That's just one example. Uh, obviously, there are probably some hot days where wind blows, but generally speaking, you know, if if you and if you're consuming heat in the winter and the sun's only shining for four or five hours a day or what have you, like how how would you in a solar energy world uh, apply or solve that mismatch? Batteries obviously help because you generate power when you can, you keep it, and then you can distribute it when it's when it's demanded. Um, Tesla obviously has been doing a lot of batteries. You know, Solar City is more of a 
Solar City is more of kind of a financing company. If you really get into like the nuts and bolts of what they do in terms of like putting solar cells on people's houses and then selling and then packaging them up into financial products and selling them to basically bond investors. So that, that's kind of a quirky business. Um, there's some obviously some OEMs in Japan and China that are working on batteries, and then obviously utility. I mean, you know, it sounds sort of obvious and plain vanilla, but there are some utilities that are doing interesting things. Obviously, it behooves them to solve, you know, peak peak demand um, issues on the grid and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think this is one of those spaces where the big picture story um, makes a lot of sense. You know, the way that venture funds are probably going after it is making a lot of little tiny bets, hoping that one pays off big in the long run. Um, and so, from a public investor's perspective, it's it's kind of hard to replicate that. Without having their access, their capital access to things that aren't public yet, and so on and so forth. But you know, uh, you know, Tesla obviously has merits as an investment beyond batteries. And then um, I would look at the I would look at the utilities and see if any of them are doing interesting things. It's interesting, and I know David Gardner has talked about this on his podcast, uh, Rule Breaker Investing. The idea of car ownership and just sort of the the ripple effects beyond just sort of battery-powered cars, um, but when you look at autonomous cars, the rise of Uber, that sort of thing, and imagining one potential outcome is car ownership becomes something that our generation is maybe the last to really embrace, sure. yeah. and that 30 years from now, there's not really a good economic case right. for there's owning just, a car. It's just a bunch of fleet management companies, or, or so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I've talked that through, and, and and you could certainly see the merits of that. Um, you know, there's some fringe cases where you live out in the middle of nowhere, where maybe it behooves you to have your own transportation. Right. Um, you know, the other, you know, people make jokes about, you know, guys who have canned food and gold bars and guns locked up in their house. But you know, in an emergency situation, having your own wheels potentially that's going to work. You know, that, it's a sort of a fat tail event. But you know, if, if it only costs you two thousand dollars to have some sort of old Volvo sitting in your driveway. Maybe you do it, just in case. Um, yeah, certainly from an efficiency standpoint, I mean, Uber has really changed changed the, the way that people think about convenience. I mean, you know, I was at this conference last week, and obviously there are a lot of per capita, there are a lot of Uber drivers per capita in San Francisco. Um, you know, but 400 people left the conference at the same time. Like, imagine hitting a taxi line. I mean, you're going to be standing, if you're at an airport, and it's like, oh my God, you know, that, that's that's a two and a half hour wait. Whereas all of a sudden, 100 Ubers just showed up out of the street. There you go. Everybody got in their own car. You, had, you knew what license plate to look for, and everybody was on their merry way. So, um, yeah, I think there's some interesting things coming um, in terms of making assets more efficient. And certainly, there's, there's a lot of ways to make a car that sits in your driveway for 22 hours out of the day a lot more efficient. Before we wrap up, let's talk about running, because you and I ran in the U.S. National 12K yesterday. I didn't win. I am <laughs> not the national champion. <laughs> Nor am I. Although, before I left my house, my 10-year-old son looked at me and said, I know you're not going to come in first place. And I said, thanks, buddy. And he said, but I want you to try to come in first place. Well, there was that guy, I, was was like, it, I don't need that pressure. Was it at the Boston Marathon this year where there was a guy who just sprinted out and like, he ran like the first three or four miles just as hard as he could to say that he had led the Boston Marathon. Really? I think that's true. I think that was a real thing. And there's part of me where you're like, yeah, we're going to stand on the finish line and just start at a dead sprint. And yeah. just, you know, obviously, you're, gonna be, you're probably not going to make it past mile one, but I'm going to be winning. 
for some period of time. So there were elite. Runners. I didn't actually do that. Yeah, no, no. They crossed my mind. There, there were elite <laughs> runners, uh, people who I think it's safe to say we're going to see on the U.S. Olympic team next summer. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Molly Huddle. Uh, the woman who won the national 12K yesterday by about 30 seconds. She, she was way out in front. She just destroyed everybody else in the field. Um, I, I don't know about you. At one point during the race, I actually found myself thinking about long-term investing. And here's why. Okay. Because there were people in this race who had uh, age groups on their Bibs. Bibs, sure. Yep. So instead of just you and me, we just had basic numbers. But there were some people who had age groups, and there were people in their sixties and seventies. Yeah. And it just sort of got me thinking about sort of long-term investing, the benefits of long-term investing, and also how, you know what, these young these young runners they're doing great, but some young runners just have just like young investors or older investors they <laughs> they have a hot streak of a year or two. This is quite an analogy. I had a lot of time. <laughs> I, it took me a long time to finish this race, so I had a long, a lot of time to think about this. But yeah, I, it just sort of got me thinking. But then you got these other people who are just sort of like they've been out there running for fifty years, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I was. I think the most. I mean, obviously, to the people who won, it's incredible, nice job. Yeah, but I was. I mean, I was impressed. You know, I was running pace next to a shoulder to shoulder with a, a gentleman who had like a seventy-five and older division, and I was like, "Sir, nice job." Like I hope yeah. when I'm seventy-five. <laughs> I'm out here cruising away on a beautiful Sunday morning. Like yeah. that, that that's awesome. I think um the other thing there was there was like a nine year old or a ten year old in the one mile dash that occurred after who who put up like a, a sub five minute mile. He finished in like four fifty eight. I was like, Wow. Wow. Hope you don't flame out. <laughs> um There's no rest for the weary though, because this coming Sunday there's another race and the Motley Fool is actually a sponsor of this. This is the run for shelter. Uh, which benefits the Carpenter's Shelter. This uh, is a good cause. Yes. This is a great cause, and this is uh, I, I think our company has sponsored this every year, just about every year we've we've done it. I think this is the fifth, fourth, or fifth year this that race has gone. Sounds off. potentially accurate. Um, so if you're in the D.C. area, and we'll tweet this out on the Market Foolery uh, Twitter feed, but we'll tweet out a link to the race. Uh, come join us. Come beat Chris Hill. Uh, which won't be hard. Uh, there's a 5K, <laughs> there's a 10K, there's a fun run. So whatever your level, whatever your speed, whatever or your you interest. could try to take down. The Motley Fool has won this race. Somebody from the Motley Fool, I believe, has won this race in uh, each of the past... In the last two years. Two years. So two years ago, Matt Kopenheffer won it. Yep, now last in Germany. Last year, Ma- uh, Max Hacker... Yes, is Max coming it. back to defend his title? Yes, he is. He's one Wonderful. of our financial planners. Max is he's fast. He is very fast. He so is our fastest from- financial planner. <laughs> yes, I think he's our fastest fool. He might be the fastest person at the company, uh, but it's a great cause. It's Sunday, November twenty second, eight a.m. Come join us. There's going to be about forty of us. Uh, the th- the person I'm the most excited for is the person I think has the greatest spectrum of performance on Sunday, and that's our friend Morgan Housel, because Mor- Morgan is Morgan running. Morgan's running. Wonderful. Morgan's in good shape. Yeah. Morgan has a newborn. Yeah. So Morgan could do great. Morgan, if he gets a bad night's sleep, he could oh, be yeah. he could be a zombie Sunday morning. He that, could he could be dead last, not beating Chris Hill. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You never know with the uh, getting a good night's sleep is critical. We talked about this just before. Good, yeah, you were saying. Yeah, so I had had a couple of poor times heading into this race, and it turns out that if I if I'm not running at altitude in 100 degree heat, have slept the night before, and, and didn't go out drinking, it turns out my time gets a lot better. Shocker! <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, buddy. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.